Well, there can be a great difference between the facts of an event, uh, what happens, and the significance of an event, really grasping what it means and what it means for us. The facts, in some ways, are the actions of an event, you know, put down in space, time, and history. But the significance of that event is given to us in the explanation that we get, the narrative that frames it. For example, I remember a number of years ago, before I was ordained, when I was working in the city, a colleague of mine and, uh, and I were in a meeting, and after a period of time, he started to slur his words, which was really strange. He seemed to be disoriented, um, almost kind of drunk, and then he got up to try to, to move towards the door, and he stumbled, couldn't walk in a straight line, and fell over. It looked like he was drunk, and I could see the look of shock on the client's faces and on my face, and then as I went over to, to look at him, I noticed that he had a diabetes bracelet on his arm. He wasn't drunk, he was hyperglycemic, and a Mars bar later, 10 minutes or so, sugar into his system, he was revived, and he was fine. The actions were there, you know, him slurring his words, stumbling over, but it required the explanation of the diabetes braces to understand the significance of what is going on. Uh, a mentor of mine, um, you know, used to say, or still says, action plus explanation equals revelation. When we're looking at Scripture, it's not just the actions, what happened, but we need the explanation of Scripture to realize the revelation, the significance of what's gone on. And nowhere is that more true than with the cross. The central event of human history, one of the most debated events, and one of the big questions is, what is going on? What's the significance? Many, many people look at Jesus of Nazareth dying on a cross and see him as a good man dying tragically young. Maybe a political revolutionary who finally is overcome by the establishment. The actions are not really in dispute. He died in space, time, and history. But the explanation of Scripture, and for our passage today from Matthew's Gospel, is required to get the revelation, the significance of what is going on. So for that, as we look at our passage today, we're going to see three things as we try to grab, not only grasp, not only the actions, but also the explanation to give us the revelation. The mockery of Jesus the King is our first point. Then we're going to look at the suffering of Jesus the King. And finally, the accomplishment of Jesus the King. Let's look first of all at the mockery of Jesus the King in verses 32 to 44. Now, Matthew wants us to see and make absolutely no mistake about the fact that when Jesus was crucified, he was mocked by pretty much everyone. Look with me at verse 34. The reason he doesn't drink the wine mixed with gall is that gall is a bitter herb. And so they seem to be offering him a drink for his thirst on the cross, but actually they've spiked it. And they're giving him a bitter drink, and so he spits it out, he won't have it. Then verse 37, the notice above Jesus on the cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, is a notice of mockery, because of course no king dies on a cross, stripped naked, scorned by everyone around him. He looks like a joke. Then verse 39, we're told that passers-by hurl insults at him. Verse 41, the chief priests and teachers of the law, those who should worship him and receive him as the Messiah, mock him. And verse 44, even those crucified with him, these rebels, heap insults on him. Everyone is mocking Jesus. Now, why is this so significant? Well, what are they mocking him about? Listen to what they say. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Save yourself if you are the son of God. He said, I am the son of God. Let, he, let God rescue him. All the mockery is focused on the fact 
that Jesus had made claims, that Jesus had been received by the crowd as being the Son of God, God's anointed King, the Messiah. And yet when he dies on the cross, scorned by everyone around him, that claim just looks like an absolute joke. Him? A king? Where's his crown? Where's his throne? And yet Matthew wants us to see as he weaves into this passage the explanation of the prophecies of Scripture that have been given hundreds of years before that there is a majestic irony here. The mockery validates Jesus as king. It doesn't undermine him. It actually validates him as king. So that detail about the wine mixed with gall, Psalm 69 verse 21, a psalm written by King David about the king says this, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy about what will happen to the king. Verse 35, we're told that they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and that is from Psalm 22 verse 18, our Old Testament reading where we left off, which said, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, a psalm written about the king. Also in Psalm 22, verse 6, listen to these words. I am a man and a worm, sorry, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. A psalm all about God's anointed king. In other words, the mockery does not undermine Jesus' claims to be God's anointed king, but the mockery actually establishes Jesus' claims to be the anointed king. That's the great irony. Everyone mocks him, saying, a king, you, and at the very moment, by the very words they mock him with, they are actually establishing him as God's great anointed king. One of my favorite films is a bit of an old film now. It stars the now late but great actor Heath Ledger, and it's called A Knight's Tale. And in A Knight's Tale, it's set in medieval England, and it's the story of a peasant boy, played by Heath Ledger, um, William Thatcher. And William Thatcher longs to be a knight, but he lacks the noble heritage to be able to become a knight. Either way, he, he aspires to be a knight, and so he sets about establishing himself as a knight. And through the whole film, we see that the real knights, the ones who've got the noble heritage, are a pretty horrible bunch of people. And yet all of the qualities of a knight are exhibited in William Thatcher's life. He's humble, he seeks to serve other people, he's courageous, he's bold, he's the hero of the film. But after a period of time with him trying to become a knight, the fact that he's not of nobility is discovered, and he's thrown in the stocks, and the whole crowd gather around him to mock him and to scorn him. And in this great scene at the turning point of the film, young Prince Edward, who is the heir to the throne, comes. And he's someone who has already observed the way that William Thatcher has conducted himself. And he says these words to him, Your men and all the people love you. If I knew nothing else about you, that would be enough. But you also advance when you should withdraw. And that is nightly too. And then he commands him to be released and turns to the crowd and says this. He may appear to be of humble origins, but he is actually of noble blood. This is my word, and as such, it is beyond contestation. He calls him to be completely released. He asks him to take a knee, and in front of the whole crowd who had once mocked him, he knights him, dubs him a knight, and he rises up as a knight. And that's just a small picture of what is going on here. 
Everything about this scene of the cross makes us think that Jesus is not the Son of God. But actually, everything about the scene establishes him as the Son of God. His crucifixion is his coronation. The cries of mockery merely establish his sovereignty. His humility is the surest sign of his divinity. The mockery doesn't undermine Jesus as the Son of God. It establishes Jesus as the Son of God. This is his hour of greatest glory, the beautiful, majestic irony of the cross. Let's look secondly at the suffering of Jesus the King, verses 45 to 50. Now, these verses focus in on Jesus' suffering. First of all, notice the darkness, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Three hours, when the sun should be at its peak, when there should be full brightness, there's complete darkness. Now, in Scripture, darkness is symbolic of God's judgment. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. So when God in judgment withdraws his presence from his creation, from his creatures, darkness descends. As the words of the hymn put it, while might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in, when Christ the mighty maker died, for man his creatures sin. Not just the darkness, then there's also the cry that explains the darkness. Here's the explanation, verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama samakthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, on one level, this cry of pain and anguish, this deep existential gut-wrenching why shows the pain that Jesus is in. But notice what it explains to us about what is hurting Jesus. He doesn't cry out, the nails, the nails, please remove them from me. He doesn't shout out, the cross, the cross, please help me and get me down from here. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is the source of Jesus' suffering? It is not primarily the physical horror, the torture of the cross. It is the relational torture of the fact that his relationship with the Father has been severed. God has on the cross abandoned his Son. Think of it like this. For us as human beings, we all get how painful abandonment is. And the, the more significant a person is to our life, uh, the more we care about that person, the greater the trauma and the pain of that abandonment. A, a colleague at work who you don't know very well, if they just turn their back on you and the team at a crucial moment, that can be incredibly destabilizing for your work and for your team and take a while to work through. A friend that you've known for a while, if they abandon you in your hour of need, the pain could take years to work through. And I say this with all pastoral awareness. A father leaving a child, abandoning them early on, that can have traumatic effects, which I know, sadly, some of you in the church family have experienced, that go on for years. The closer someone is, the more abandonment hurts. So ask yourself this question. What would it be like for the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who has been in the bosom of the Father, as it's put in John chapter 1, since eternity past, who has never known a moment that there has not been intimacy and joy and love and acceptance with the Father for all eternity. And then at that one moment on the cross, it's completely severed. Not only is it severed, 
But the Father pours out his just anger on all of the sin of the world, on his Son. That's the abandonment that's going on. Because that's the darkness. The darkness, we're told, is over the whole land. Why? Because all creation has turned its back on the Son. The darkness, the judgment should be on the people who mock Jesus. But they're not crying out, why have you forsaken me, Lord? No, the Son cries out, why have you forsaken me? Because He is forsaken for us, for the ways that all of us in the natural inclinations of our heart look at Him and reject Him, push Him to the peripheries of our lives, for the ways that consciously or unconsciously we mock Him. You, a king, you're a joke. No matter the veneer of respectability we put on it, for the ways that we say, no, you will not be my king. I will be my king. The darkness descends, but it descends on Jesus. He suffers for you and for me. That is the great irony of verse 42. You see what the people said? He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. No, it's because he wouldn't save himself that he was able to save others. He was rejected for us. He was abandoned for us. I wonder, do you know this? He died not just an abstract death, but he died specifically for you, the suffering of Jesus the King. Thirdly, then, as we look particularly at how this applies to our lives, the accomplishment of Jesus the King, verses 51 to 54. I want us to notice three things that Jesus' death accomplishes from these verses. Access, life, and assurance. Access, life, and assurance. I want to slow down so that we can really see how this connects with us today. First of all, access. Verse 51. At that moment, that is the moment when Jesus cried out and gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The camera, if you like, on the cross suddenly cuts to the temple mount. And in the temple, there is a curtain that hangs between the most holy place where symbolically God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people from the holy place, the rest of the temple. And that curtain was 20 meters high by 10 meters across, and it was four inches thick. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, reports that it was so strong that he says horses tied to each side could not pull it apart. And what happens to that curtain at the moment that Jesus dies is explaining to us what his death accomplishes. Because the curtain was like a big keep out sign. It was symbolic of the way that after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they had to be shut out from God's presence because the penalty of sin is to be rejected by God because sin is a rejection of God. And so they were cast out of God's presence. And in some sense, the inclination of every human heart, the thrust of every culture ever since, has been this one great search, how can we get back into the presence of God? And the answer is we can't. But when Jesus dies, from top to bottom, the curtain is torn in two. God can do what we were never able to do. He tears down the keep out sign. Access is granted. 
Jesus was shut out so that we can now come in. Jesus was rejected so that we can be accepted. Jesus was cast into darkness so that we can come into the light. And now anyone, anytime, can come to Jesus Christ. No matter your moral track record, whether you would say you're religious or not, what type of a week you've had, this is the wonder of the cross because He died. If you will make that He died for me, then access to God is open. One of the great pains of lockdown has been that we've been cut off from the people we love. Access has been denied. And yet there is, if I can put it like this, no such thing as a divine lockdown if we know Jesus Christ. You don't have to come to a religious building to know Jesus. You don't have to say some special prayer or incantation to know Jesus. You don't have to scrub up your act and turn your life around before you can know Jesus. You just trust in him and you can have full access to God through Jesus Christ. We are never cut off from God. We are never in lockdown if we know Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, access to God. Secondly, verse 52, life. The tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Matthew shifts us forward now to the events after the resurrection. And he talks about the way that after Jesus' resurrection, in space, time, and history, people were raised to life. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, even as Christians hear this, it is difficult to get our heads around. What, dead people raised to life? Really? As fantastical as it sounds, let me say, it is no more fantastical than Jesus' physical resurrection, a matter of historical record, the cornerstone of the church that happened in space, time, and history. If Jesus was raised to life, the significance of that event is that anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus will be raised to life. The reason that Matthew is recording it here is because he's linking the cross and the resurrection. They are connected. The cross is Jesus' death, but the resurrection is Jesus' rising to new life, showing that the cross has worked, showing that all who trust in Jesus, there is life, life after death, the life of resurrection Jesus, breaking into our lives now, giving us energy and power and joy. The life of new resurrection bodies one day. The life of this world, recreated, redeemed, a new creation. Everything good about this world, nothing that's bad. Real physical life, no more sickness, no more crying, no more mourning, no more death. And it will be all for that. It will be for those who trust in Jesus Christ. This must be a great comfort to us. One of the traumatic things about COVID has been the way that the death rates have been put on our screens every day with the news. And for a culture that is just not prepared for death, that's been deeply, deeply destabilizing. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, Death is not the end. Death does not have the final word. Death is not the final curtain call. Life, life wins. Resurrection life. And that resurrection life breaks into the now and transforms you now and takes you into eternity, leading you by the hand through death. So there is no fear for those who know Jesus Christ. Do you know this life? 
Do you know the hope of this life? Trust in Jesus and you will. And finally, assurance. Verse 54, and we're going to end on this. The centurion, one of the most unlikely people, when he saw, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Think of this centurion. Think of the hundreds of deaths he presided over. Think of how hardened he must have become to death, just another death, just another man put up on the cross. But something about the way that Jesus conducted himself on the cross, breaks through all of the layers of those callous, that calloused heart over the years of putting people to death, breaks through because something is different about this man. And notice what he says. The most unlikely person say this. Surely he was the Son of God. He must be the most unlikely person to say this, but that makes him probably the most credible witness to say this. Because if he was persuaded, anyone could be persuaded. And notice what he says. Not probably he was the Son of God. Not it's my opinion or I would like to believe that he was the Son of God. No, the words are surely he was the Son of God. The centurion would say to us, I want you to know, to have assurance. God's word has recorded this to give us assurance that he was the Son of God. Of course, all of us have questions. All of us are prone to wondering, is it true? Access to God just by knowing a person, Jesus Christ? Life now and beyond the grave, that death is not the end. Is, is it true? Is he really the son of God? That's normal. We all ask that question. And the centurion would say to us, my friend, surely he was the son of God. You can be assured Whatever you're going through, however dark it seems this Advent season, however much you long for the vaccine or for COVID to be pushed back, whatever you're facing right now, surely he was the Son of God. Know that he has died for you. Know that he's offered, he offers life to you if you will trust in him. Know that he is the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for this event in space, time, and history, but not just the event, but we praise you for the explanation of Scripture about this event to reveal to us the significance that the mockery of Jesus validates his sovereignty and his divinity, that the suffering of Jesus secures for us acceptance, access to you, life now and in the future, and the assurance of knowing Jesus, the Son of God. May you impress this on our hearts by the power of your spirit, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.